Welcome to Women Who Push the Limits. Are you ready to find your voice, speak your truth, and change the world? Then you'll be glad you joined us for this amazing conversation. So let's get right into today's episode. Here's your host, Lynn Murphy. The following interview with Victoria Valentino was recorded in June 2020. Welcome and thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women Who Push the Limits. I'm Lynn Murphy, your host, and I am so delighted today to introduce you to our very, 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 very special guest, Victoria Valentino. She is a keynote speaker and a media personality, her most visible role in the last few years. She's been speaking out against Bill Cosby, the serial rapist, because she is a survivor of a sexual assault by Bill Cosby. She's also had some really soul-sucking experiences in her life, and she has come through that with just such an amazing outlook on life, and she talks about repurposing her life after all these things that happened to her. And, you know, I say happened to her, they were her experiences. I don't see her as a victim. She's talking about being a survivor. She was a Playboy centerfold in September 1963. She worked as a Playboy bunny, and that doesn't define who she is by any means. She uh, later went on to be an actress, a folk singer. She's a nurse, and she did training as a nurse. She's a talk show host. She's a writer. She's got an amazing book that's about to come out. I can't wait to see that one. But she's been very outspoken in the last five or so years with the Cosby trial going on and has been willing to come forward um, to speak about the sexual assault that she experienced with Cosby. So welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story. Thanks, Lynn, for having me. I really appreciate that. Well, you and I had a great conversation the other day, and I know you've had some, as I said, soul searing, soul-stealing experiences in your life. So give us the Reader's Digest version of what your life has been like. Um, You know, the the things that kind of have made you who you are today, have informed who this beautiful woman is that we're looking at today. (laughs) I think as a child, I um, had on the surface a very privileged life. But under the surface, there was an awful lot of psychological and emotional abuse and some physical abuse and, you know, a dancing with uh, some sexual assault as a young child um, kind of fell into a situation uh, when I was 18 away at school and was raped three times in my senior year of high school. Strangely enough, while it destroyed me, it also made me flip into this place of bravado. Something snapped inside of me, and I've been thinking about that a lot. I started being uh, cavalier about it. It was the only way I think I could handle it. Like, oh, no big deal. You know, I'm just a woman of the world. And um, But in fact, I was a little naive 18-year-old from Ridgefield, Connecticut, 
and away at private school and the American Theater Wing in New York. And all I ever wanted to do is sing and dance on Broadway and uh, move audiences with my grand performances. I was really shocked and stunned. And my parents, of course, we never spoke about anything. These were, you know, this is the end of the 50s and 1661. So nobody was talking about anything. And then um, I wound up out in California because my parents, whenever they couldn't handle one of us kids, they would ship us off from Connecticut to grandma in West Hollywood. Of course, grandma just wanted me to date the uh, pimply-faced youth group leader <laughs> at the West Hollywood Presbyterian Church. So I showed them, you know, and I basically ran away and and uh, traveled with a, a Hoyt Axton. He uh, wrote that wonderful song, Joy to the World. So in those days, he was 26. I was 18 or nine, just turned 19 or something. And then, of course, he turned out to be a little bit of an abusive human. And so I broke up with him and was depressed and got sucked into this relationship with my first husband, the father of my son. And he was Afro-Cuban. He was a kunga drummer. He saw me as an opportunity to uh, make money. But, of course, I was too young to know that he didn't really love me. What he really had his eye on was my jewelry mm -hmm. and stuff. My little inheritance from my birth father, who um, had been killed in World War II. In any case, I was very naive. I really, I think I always believed in the core decency of every human being, which made me pretty much of a sitting duck. He wound up uh, taking pictures of me nude because he wanted to be a photographer. And I thought, well, he's my husband. I'm trying to help him become a professional photographer. He submitted them to this magazine I'd never heard of. Of course, I didn't realize, of course, that Playboy was like a big deal. And so once my uh, I was ready to shoot the centerfold, um, he had already hit me. And I had decided to walk away and then discovered the day before I was shooting the centerfold that I was pregnant with his child. Mm. And, of course, abortions were illegal in those days. And um, I just was desperately despondent. When my son was probably about a year old, um, he started trafficking me to, because now I was a Playboy celebrity. I was trafficked for three months, horrible months, uh, until I was able to escape. But... In those three months, I saw the seamy underbelly of Hollywood celebrity and, uh, and politics because all of the uh, clients were very big names, mm. both in politics and on the silver screen. At that point, I managed to escape from him after being severely beaten. I'm still dealing with some physical injuries to this day. I wound up opening the first Playboy Club on the, on the Sunset Strip uh, in uh, New Year's Eve, 64. And I was suffering from a lot of PTSD and not understanding what it was. 
you know, just trying to put on a good face, get myself into that costume and be out there. Hi, I'm your bunny, Vicky. And was suffering and miserable and unhappy where a lot of the other bunnies were just like so excited. You know, it was like the sorority in their first brush and maybe only brush in their lifetime with glamour and celebrity. But for me, it was, it was painful. And I, I felt, I felt like a slave on the, on the slave block, you know, being peddled. I did not enjoy it. So how did you get yourself to work every day and take care of your child and do all those things, Victoria, when, when you were hurting so much inside? Honestly, I don't know. Just one foot in front of the other. I had to, um, I came from a long line of pioneer women and I saw my mother get up every day and put her wig on and put her full on makeup. She had gotten the mumps when she and I both had gotten the mumps when I was about nine years old or so. She had a high fever, lost all of her hair and it never grew back the rest of her life. And I saw her hold herself with dignity You know, and her mother was paralyzed with polio from the time she was four years old and told that she could never do anything in her life, yet she homesteaded land in South Dakota, married the most handsome cousin and had three children and played piano with both hands and sewed all my baby clothes. You know, I saw these women growing up who just kind of sucked it up and, and carried on. And I didn't know any better. <laughs> oh, that's so your I didn't model. Do. Yeah. That, that's what you know. That's what you grow up with. But we never talked about the issues. We mm. never addressed the underlying pain or the underlying suffering. We never addressed any of the, the, yeah. the real deep issues that, that moved us, that, that kept us going. It was just you'd talk about biscuits, you know, you'd talk about new shoes, have to get to the dentist, you know, I mean, it was all kind of surface everyday stuff, but the real painful stuff underneath that everybody was really dealing with was always like the subliminal soundtrack going on that would surface every once in a while in some very dysfunctional, screwed up way when something came along to create waves. Well, and, and you and I spoke the other day about how when you were raped in high school, that your mother thought you were just out there giving it away or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly how you said that, but you didn't mm-hmm. talk about those things. You didn't share. She didn't ask. She just made the assumptions. Exactly. They had a couple who used to live next door to us in Jersey, and they were on their way to visit my parents in Connecticut and stopped in unannounced into my apartment in New York while I was in high school. And um, all of and it was a high school for theater kids, professional children's school. Um, and so we were all theater kids, and the day they showed up, my roommate, who was a student, she was a concert pianist student, and when she was at home, she never got out of her long white antique nightgown, and her hair pulled up um, straight out of, I don't know, an old Renoir, and they showed up and wanted to come upstairs, so I buzzed them up, and 
I guess they just took one look around and made the assumption that this was a brothel <sighs> instead of understanding we were just theater kids, you know, doing what we were doing, you know. My parents never mentioned it. But years later, the same couple said to me, well, you know what you were doing in New York. And I said, yeah, because I had lost my virginity in New York. And I was playing hooky because I had discovered jazz. And so with my boyfriend, we were going to Birdland. And we'd be there until we closed the place at four in the morning. Then we'd go have breakfast. Then I'd try to make it to geometry class at nine in the morning. You know, and I couldn't keep my eyes open. I didn't make it to school a lot. And he was a diplomat. The UN was in session at the time. So I was also ditching school to go sit with him in the fourth committee. And I got turned on to international politics. A whole world I didn't even know existed. So I was fascinated by that. And I mean, it was just, I was, I was blown away by this incredibly exotic life. The, and going to school, the curriculum was so far behind Connecticut that I was bored silly in school, and I was ready to I just eat the world. You know, I just wanted to savor everything, all of this interesting stuff that I was learning. And, and so um, I felt guilty that I wasn't paying attention to my studies and that I had a boyfriend. And he was dark-skinned. He was from Libya. He was a Berber. I thought that's what they were referring to. Yeah, they weren't clear, and you didn't stop to ask. But think, of, Victoria, all those fascinating things you were doing in New York at that young age, sitting in on UN sessions, I mean, all of that oh. was so much more inspiring than geometry or something like that. Incredible experiences. Oh, it absolutely was. It, it was. it was fascinating. I was just blown away. I didn't want to go to school. No, I was fascinated. Assumptions that they made about what was going on. It's so interesting how that communication piece just didn't match, right? You thought one thing, they thought the other. Your mother and your grandmother were both strong, but there was still that lack of communication there, the piece uh -huh. that you never talked about, never healed those things that you said were underneath the surface. You know, and then I'm thinking about with your first husband, the one who trafficked you, uh -huh. how did you get the strength to walk away from that? Because I know you and I talked about the fact that he had two children and he made you responsible for those or emotionally attached uh -huh. to you to those children. How could you find the strength to walk away from a situation like that that was turning dangerous? I can't say it was strength. I think I was just at the point where it was a matter of life or death at that point. I had reached this point where he was so violent that if I was 30 seconds late getting back to the house, if I hit a red light or ran into traffic and I didn't get back on the dot, when he said I should be back. And of course he held the children hostage. Yeah. He would leave me with the children and say he was going out for cigarettes and then he wouldn't show back up for two or three weeks. And I never had any idea how to get hold of him. But I had these children, you know, my baby and his two toddlers. And no money. And no money. Yeah. No. There were times where, you know, I'd I'd have 
Altadena dairy delivery, you know, and they wouldn't deliver anymore because I couldn't pay the bill. I um, found all the places where you could get three day old brownies for a quarter. I shoplifted, you know, if I couldn't get anything for them to eat, I would, you know, we'd go into uh, save on or whatever the place was at the time, you know, and I looked pretty innocent baby in a stroller and two little toddlers, you know, and I would just scam bags of nuts or whatever I could put in the baby's blanket without being noticed. Mm -hmm. uh, it was always pretty risky. It was a terrifying time, you know, and, and for a girl who had grown up the way I had with private French lessons and nine years of classical ballet and you know, we had a 10 room big old house in Connecticut. You know, it was uh, it was an eye opener learning how to survive. And of course, I didn't have any job skills. I was never trained to do anything except sing, dance and act. So I didn't even know how to go to the laundromat. So I learned how to go to the laundromat <laughs> with the children and a shopping cart. There were, there were quite a few lessons, <laughs> survival lessons, but I didn't know how to go get a job, you know, with three little kids. And they were all biracial, of course. So this was 1963, 64. Of course, the Civil Rights Act was 1964. So even though, as you know, laws change, but people's minds and hearts don't, mm -hmm. that takes a much longer time. Well, I'm sure you experienced a lot of, I don't know if it was over-discrimination, but I'm sure you experienced a lot of people who covertly anyway were not happy to be associating with you and probably looked askance at your children. I was pretty isolated, really. I didn't have anybody to go to at that point. My parents were back east and I couldn't really show up on my crippled grandmother's doorstep in West Hollywood. The, the discrimination that, that we suffered, that I suffered was when uh, from the LAPD actually, because if we would be driving, if he would show up and we'd go out with the children anywhere, we'd get pulled over by the LAPD. He'd be thrown up against the wall. I'd be thrown on the curb, hold the baby and the children and they'd call me all kinds of names and run makes on us search the car and accuse us of doing drugs because they found his Maalox tablets in the glove compartment in an unopened bubble pack he had an ulcer so this one particular time that I, I tell a lot because it's so typical um, when I asked them finally when they let us go and I said well what did you actually stop us for they said we thought your brake lights weren't working they're still using that excuse aren't they yes they are and we're seeing it all around us now and it's just horrific and being a white woman i wound wind up hearing a lot of the the stuff the nudge nudge wink winks and the mm -hmm. and the racial slurs because so many people feel it's safe to say them in front of me that i would understand and that they could commiserate. They have no idea who they're speaking to. Having had the shock of discovering after both my parents died that I had been all my adult life defending myself on one level, and I had been shunned and accused and labeled on a whole different level, and the whole family saw me as 
that person that my parents or my mother certainly uh, told them I was. I never thought to ask them, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. What do you think I was doing in New York? So when um, my aunt said to me after my mother died, well, you know, your mother used to say some terrible things about you. And I said, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, but I didn't say what. What was it that she actually said? It never occurred to me. I just went, oh, yeah, well, she says that about everybody when they turn their backs, you know, because that was my mother. I just went to that part of the conversation instead of saying, well, what was it that she actually said about me? Yeah. I, I just didn't. You know, I, I just said, well, you know, I went through a rough patch in high school. Well, and you didn't but start just, sharing a lot of that until you were an adult. Is that right? I mean, did it, did it start coming out before the situation with Cosby surfaced? Or when did you start sharing the truth of some of those things? Just before my mother died, I, that was the only time I ever told her that I'd been raped in my senior year of high school. Mm. That was 2011. She was 92. What prompted you to tell her that? How'd you find the strength or the wherewithal to say that to her? I don't know. I just think probably I felt that uh, time was coming to a close where we would have an opportunity to communicate and talk about stuff. And even though I thought we could talk about things in a more open and mature way, with her, it was always... you you hit a wall at a certain point and then she would just change the subject or say, don't dwell, dear. Mm -hmm. Don't dwell. Or, oh, Vic, you're too emotional. Oh, Vic, you're too philosophical. And change the subject to her moisturizer <laughs> or her clothes or, you know, she needed some new something or another, you know. Something and so um, talk about, right? Yeah, the safe things. So consequently, uh, we never really did have the conversations. Even the last day uh, that we shared together, about two days before she died. The strong women, but not the ones who were opening up in conversations. Not open. They held back. And you know, I was in that era too. Born in the late '40s, grew up in the '50s when. We just didn't talk about those things. Speaking of children, so are you willing to revisit your son? I know that's a difficult situation, Victoria. You want to share a little bit about that and how that led to what happened with Cosby? Well, sure. I mean, he's a living part of my life, even though he would be, I think, 57 on the 22nd of August this year. After having scrambled and scuffled and did doing everything I could to recover from uh, being trafficked and, and uh, being alone with my son and not really having, I had some support from my family, but not really. It was more for my son, you know, they would babysit and uh, they adored him, even though my father wanted me to give him up for adoption because I shouldn't have a brown child, you know. But then in the end, shortly before my son's death, my son climbed up on his on my stepdad's lap and said, and called him grandpa. And he called him grandson. That was my father's way of letting me know that 
he had accepted, you know, my son. I mean, he, my son was this amazing child, um, and uh, his name was Tony, and he was a Leo, which he always told everybody, hi, my name is Tony, I'm a Leo. <laughs> and he was probably the most wonderfully wise, sensitive, beautiful little man. And we did everything together. And he was just a miraculous child. He was wise beyond his years. And I've heard so many stories since he died that other kids that knew him, that played with him. And he um, would ask them questions about God and about death and what happens after death. You know, even as a five-year-old. Even a, a, a friend of mine who used to babysit him asked her if she would come to his funeral. He must have known something. He must have had some yeah. download that the soul, yeah. soul knew that he was there for yeah. a short time. So uh, after fighting and scrambling and doing a lot of uh, B-movies because nobody really was interested in having me as a legitimate actress, even though I was a Screen Actors Guild member, um, because I was a playmate, um, nobody took me seriously as a serious actor. And I had done Shakespeare, I'd done, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein stuff, morality plays, all the old Greek and Roman stuff, way back in the 50s in Connecticut and New York. And it was really impossible. And I, I wound up either cocktailing or dancing in nightclubs or um, working in B-movies, you know, feeling always down and depressed. Well, in between takes one day, I was picking guitar and singing one of my songs, and one of the other actors said, hey, I, I know an agent who is um, looking for talent to send to this producer at Capitol Records. Are you interested? I said, you bet. And I wound up being uh, signed to a recording contract to Capitol Records. My music attorney had uh, successfully negotiated the contract and was holding a party at his house up in the Hollywood Hills. My son drowned in his swimming pool at the beginning of the party that he was giving to celebrate the successful negotiation of my contract. Oh. I couldn't record I would go into the studio, nothing would come out. Yeah. I had nothing to give. I had, I had nothing left, you know. And my grandmother died about three weeks, four weeks later. Then her sister, my head was spinning. I'd never been to a funeral before. I'd never seen a dead body before. Boy, to have all of that um, down at one time and to, to be able to deal I with I was that. 25. At 25, oh, Victoria. You had so many things just mm -hmm. ripped away from you, it seems like. I mean, that, that's yeah. the picture I get of all this, that all these things, you know, as you've been repurposing your life and thinking about these things, is there anything that comes to mind about why all this happened or what this was all about? Is there any wisdom that came out of that? Well, somebody told me a long time ago, life looks on and sees that you're not following the purpose that you were put here to follow in this life and they rip the rug out from under you and say let's see what she does with it now mm. it creates motion it creates energy it creates change what are you going to do with it you have nothing left now now what are you going to do now what at that point i was still living with my girlfriend 
and uh, she was uh, my training bunny at when we first opened the Playboy Club and I was running out of my advance money for Capitol Records and I was, you know, picking up an acting job here and there just to keep my nose above water financially and buy food. She said, I know Bill Cosby. And so she set up an interview and I went over to his trailer on the lot and she said, oh, and take that eight by 10 of Tony and tell him what happened. You know, I'll bet he'll give you an acting job. And I said, okay. And he held the picture and looked at it and just looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. No expression. He couldn't say anything. I don't know what was going through his head at the time. And I was rattling off what happened. And finally, I I just felt so uncomfortable. And I, I thought, well, I've blown my opportunity to get a job on a show, obviously, because I'm such a basket case. He's not going to take a chance on me as an actor. I excused myself and I left. And then I moved in with um, an interim boyfriend and uh, the 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 actress who was one of our roommates uh she wanted to go over to the cafe figaro well i didn't know that he was a part owner of the figaro and so um we would go over there around four o'clock for onion soup hot a basket of hot bread and we would scrape enough pennies together to share a half a carafe of red wine this one particular day i was having a hell of a time and i was just really crying crying i I, I could not stop crying, you know, convulsive kind of crying. Somehow or another, he wound up at the table. I saw him, but I didn't want to look up because I was crying so hard. So I was just looking into my my onion soup and she was talking to him and he was clearly interested in her. She mentioned that I was having a rough day because of my little boy. And, and of course, he already knew the story. So he... Uh, suggested to her he would treat us to dinner. Of course, you know, we were thrilled that he was being so kind and generous. And, and of course, we were both actresses. And, and he sent his car over to my grandma's house to pick us up and take us to this restaurant on the strip next to the Whiskey A Go Go's. And he was chatting her up and he was making corny jokes and trying to entertain us. And I frankly was not interested and it was obvious that they were smitten with each other. Mm-hmm. So he basically was using my grief to get to her mm-hmm. and kind of putting her in charge of me so that he could, you know, weasel him his way into our confidence and our trust. And I was just sitting there kind of depressed and wishing the evening were over as quickly as possible so I could get home and rearranging food on my plate. And he put a pill down next to my wine glass and said, here, take this. It'll make you feel better. It'll make us all feel better. So it became very clear to me that I was the wet blanket. And since everybody in the clubs the managers in the nightclubs always gave us uppers to keep us working longer hours and keep our weight down so that we would finish, you know, fit into our costumes and stuff. I just assumed it was an upper and I went, sure, I'll feel better and took the pill. And then pretty soon, you know, um, our faces were in our plates because he had also given her one and then acted like he was taking one. Oh, pill party. But he didn't. 
He said we wanted to go home. I well, instead of he took us up into the hills and I was in the back seat, she was in the front seat and it was just trying to keep from throwing up and having spinners, you know, and, and trying to keep it together, you know, so you wouldn't throw up in this big star's car. And um, all of a sudden the car stopped. I thought he just wanted to show her his awards and stuff, mm. his office, he said. Well, it wasn't. And I was just willing to stay in the back seat and wait until they did whatever they were going to do and come back. And as it turned out, he opened the back door of the car and took my hand and took me out. And it wasn't a working office. It was just a crash pad. She was unconscious. She sat down and keeled over. And I basically distracted him enough to where he you know, got up and came over to me with this angry look on his face. And I stood up and my knees collapsed. And anyway, the rest is history. <laughs> And then he started to walk out, and I said, how, how are we going to get home? And he said, call a cab, and slammed out of there. We didn't know where we were, and then the phone cord was cut. And so we wound up running all the way down to the strip, and she managed to hail a taxi passing by. And I became very suicidal after that, and I just wandered the hills like a crazy woman for about nine months until I met my second husband, who was a congressman's son, a singer-songwriter also. And he's the father of my oldest daughter. Mm -hmm. And he packed me up and took me off to Louisiana. And it was his mother who saved my life, his mother and his brother's children. So my six nieces and my mother-in-law, who all just loved me unconditionally. What a gift that is to finally find someone like that with all the tragedy that was going on in your life. And then with all of this going on and the depression and the suicidal thoughts and all of this, what is it that made you willing to speak up about Cosby? You kind of had buried that for so many years. I think I understood you to say that you didn't, you told people that there had been things going on, but that you didn't necessarily tell people yeah. that it was Cosby. So Victoria, what is it that prompted you to speak out and to be so visible, because you've been visible in this trial for over five years. You've been there yeah. speaking up and, and you do speak up. You know, you, you talk about not having a voice when your husband used the karate chop, but you've been using your voice for these years around the Cosby trials. Tell us how you managed to, to pull it together so that you could speak out. Well, I don't think that I planned on speaking out. In 2005, when Andrea Constant uh, first accused him, I didn't even know her name. I just peripherally heard on CNN as I was walking out the door to work that some woman had accused him of drugging her and fondling her. That's a pattern. Until then, I thought it was just me and my stupidity and and I said, well, maybe I should get in touch with her and, and lend my support. And then, of course, I didn't. And I just didn't even know who to contact. And I let it go. So then November 22nd, 2014, I was checking my email before I went to bed. And there was a story about this woman, Barbara Bowman, who had uh, tried to be heard about being raped, uh, drugged and raped by Cosby. Uh, for 30, 35 years, and nobody believed her. And I had 
reached that point where I didn't want to talk about anything ugly anymore. I was doing positive things. I was gardening. I was hiking my dogs. I was doing my radio show. I'd just gotten a little award for superior leadership, spearheading this radio station on the call, the campus uh, radio station, um, radio studio. And I was just you know, having a great life, and I just didn't want to delve into anything anymore in the past. Then all of a sudden, there was this pop-up about this black male comedian making a joke about Cosby being a rapist, and something just snapped in my head, and I didn't really have time to think about it. I, I just started going, who do I need to talk to? So I found out that Barbara had spoken to uh, the Washington Post, and I went on the Post website, found that little contact us thing at the end, you know, and I mean, I was alive by Bill Cosby in 1969, not thinking that I would ever hear back from them. And within the hour, Adam Kushner called me. From then on out, it was a whirlwind, and I didn't really have a chance to think about it. It was suddenly, I think the time was just ripe and I had reached my tipping point. Mm -hmm. And I had just come to that place within myself that I guess I just wasn't gonna take it anymore. And I had also, as a registered nurse, um, felt maybe I had reached a point of, and, and a playboy icon, you know, I'd reached a place of professional respect on, you know, stereo. People actually respected what I had to say, even asked me for advice already. So I guess I just felt strong within myself at that point. And, and I think I just had reached a tipping point. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, I, it was a knee jerk reaction. I don't think for a minute that I had planned on doing it. It was just something snapped well, you know i was so angry i was so angry when i saw that this woman had not been believed for all these years and yet a man making a joke about it in a nightclub act suddenly validated it and then that went viral and then suddenly everybody believed yeah bill cosby you're just a rapist man you know, who are you to tell black kids to pull up their pants? Oh, because you're famous, because you had a, a successful sitcom? We all know you're just a rapist, Bill Cosby. That was pretty much what really? he said. I just snapped. I just snapped. So the timing was just right. There was something in you, and you're talking about that anger. You probably stuffed that anger for so many years, didn't you, with all the pain and everything that was going on? Mm -hmm. This was the time for it to surface the time for you to use your voice. And I keep coming back to that, talking about the voice. When your husband yeah. did, you know, cut you off, cut off mm -hmm. your voice, the police wouldn't listen to you. Your mother wouldn't listen to you. You weren't even expressing yourself. And now that this had happened and that it was out there and people were believing it, now is the time for you to use your voice. And I know you're using it continually, or not just during the trial or at the beginning, but 
you're still using that. You're still advocating for rape victims. Tell us what you're doing there because you're making such a difference there, Victoria. I know that's so helpful. Well, thank you for that. I, I hope I am. I'm not speaking out as much as I was. I have done a few things in this last year since we saw him handcuffed and taken off to prison. I performed in the Pussy Grabber plays, playing the mother of one of Trump's uh, victims. And I uh, do spoken word, and I have been a panelist on a We Talk LA, and I posed for Playboy again in winter in the winter 2020 equality issue. I was clothed; others were not. The interview was very interesting. They called me into the corporate offices, and all of the women copywriters were there. They interviewed me for two hours. The article was just wonderful and we talked about going from objectification to self-actualization and the difference between um, you know being objectified as a playboy model but then taking the bull by the horns and saying I'm going to control my own image and yes I'll pose but this is the way I'm going to pose I'm using this as a vehicle to talk about the issues at hand and that is learning to integrate all the different facets of our personality. Too many of the playmates, too many women over, over decades, you know, have gotten stuck in one role. You know, I can be a wife and a mother. I can be a sex symbol. I can be a nurse. I can be a teacher. I can be whatever. I can be damaged goods. But the thing is that you can be all of that. You can be damaged goods and wrap that package up again and make it nice and beautiful and shiny. Shine your diamond. And that's the name of my memoir, My Dirty Diamonds, The Repurposed Life of a Playboy Icon and Cosby Survivor. And it is my journey basically framed. It's not all about Cosby. It's my life. So my book is framed that way. So I get to go back and, and say, how did I get to this place? How did I get to be this voice for truth and justice? How did I get to be an advocate for other rape victims and trafficking victims and, and women looking for meaning in their lives and, and following their own yellow brick road, you know, and, and finding their way back to themselves when they've been sidetracked through a variety of different things. Writing this book has been therapy for right. me. You awesome. talked about finding your way back to yourself. What's the secret there? First of all, you know, healing comes in layers. Um, and so there have been different layers in which I discovered parts of myself that came alive, uh, that healed me, that put me into a frame of mind and a state of grace maybe that allowed me to accept the next layer of healing. And being in Louisiana with my mother-in-law, learning all of the old Cajun recipes at her elbow and having her eyes fill up with tears and say, I love you, Shaq. And, you know, and then the next layer was um, a summer I stayed with my cousin who, and she said, Vic, grab your purse wash your face, and come with me. We arrived at Fullerton Junior College, and she took me by the hand to the admission office and signed me up for a summer semester. I took two classes, 
psychology and Spanish and aced both of them. That was the greatest gift anybody in my entire family has ever given me because she remembered who I was. You see, sometimes we need somebody <laughs> who holds the mirror up, you know, mm -hmm. and say, remember you, remember who you were, remember who you still are. Let's cut, cut off all of the crap and let's get down to who you really are. And she remembered I always loved books and mm -hmm. that I always wrote haiku and that I always loved to study and I could get straight A's without having to work that hard at it because I loved the process of learning. And that's what got me back into going back to college. And, you know, it's these little things here and there. You know, you can't say, oh, it was this that did it. No, it's these little things that start the building blocks that start building you back up. And so years later, wound up going back to college again at 39. Mm -hmm. And I became a registered nurse and graduated with honors at 42. And so for over 30 years, I was a home hospice case manager and I worked with the dying. And because I was probably uh, an old show business person. I found a lot of inroads into the AIDS patients because I wasn't just kind of a, a nurse that came in to give them a med. I was somebody in the arts first mm -hmm. and they recognized me and I recognized them and we had a lot of simpatico. So then hospice became all diagnosis and I worked for Kaiser and I worked for a bunch of different hospices and I became a, a certified uh, bereavement facilitator and um, that helped me heal from my son's death and it helped me understand the grieving process. I found as I turned my understanding of pain and grief and suffering into being authentic with people who were losing everything, their lives. Mm -hmm. And I could help orchestrate the family around their bed at home and help them die in their own bed and help the families reinforce the patient as he was transitioning. So it's sort of like being a midwife on the other end. What a gift and, and, that is to people who don't know how to deal with that, who haven't had that experience. You know, and you brought all of your experiences, how traumatic they were. You could identify with that to help these people, to help the families, mm -hmm. the survivors, as well as the people who are transitioning. But, you know, you've yeah. gone through so many, so many traumatic things. If you were to look back at that, what could you say you've learned like the biggest lesson that you've learned from everything that's happened mm. in your life? We are all one. Mm. We are all one. If we can't reach out to each other on our core level of humanity, then we haven't accomplished anything in this life. We're, we're put here to learn the lessons, the soul lessons that we need to become able to be more harmonious with the divine. And I think everything that comes to us, as painful and horrible as it might be on the surface, there is always a lesson there. We need to look for the lesson 
to make ourselves better humans, to be able to be more empathetic and compassionate, mm. and to see that core thread that connects every living human being on the planet. We all bleed the same color. We all suffer. We all hurt. We all cry for our mama at the end. Yeah. We have to learn to become our own mothers. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. And that comes back to self-love. That becomes that doing something nice for yourself, something nourishing, something nurturing. If it's like saying today, I'm turning off the phones. I'm going to stay in bed with a good book and a hot cup of tea and just take care of myself. Or at the end of this rough week, I'm gonna go buy myself some roses. I'm not gonna sit and wait for the knight in shining armor to come swooping in and you know, give me these roses. I'm going to be my own knight in shining armor. I'm gonna wrap myself up in love and I'm gonna stand in front of the mirror and say, damn, you look good today, girl. Yeah. Or that was a smart thing you did or just, Thank you. Thank you. So important what those words are, whether we hear them from somebody else or whether we're hearing them in our mind, that those words are right. so powerful. And those, our thoughts are what create a reality. So if we're looking in the mirror and saying how beautiful we are, saying that to ourselves, we create that. That belief creates our whole reality, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you stop and think about, you know, the Things that we say to each other, uh, to ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, when we're just puttering around the house, you know, and stuff goes around in our minds or those, and you put yourself down, oh, I shoulda, woulda, coulda done this. So we have to listen to our self-talk. Self How long would we be friends if we said those very same things to somebody else? We wouldn't. No. We wouldn't be friends at all. No, and we should be our own. Best. And we we have to be, and you know, our 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 thoughts impact our physical health, mm -hmm. and impact it immediately. You know, when you think of where you were twenty, thirty, forty years ago, and all these things that happened, all the experiences that you had, how you perceived them at the time, but how you perceive them now, and that you're able to use all these things to help dying patients and to and to help the survivors of rape the survivors of sexual assault all this has come together victoria mm -hmm. it's just such an amazing journey that you've been on and you bring this all together so beautifully i mean even the nursing i don't know if anybody looks at you and says playboy and then says oh yeah but she's a nurse <laughs> yeah those, <laughs> those things that you combined i had a lot of <laughs> As a result, <laughs> I had a lot of nursing supervisors who didn't like me on site. I can tell you that I didn't look like the stereotypical nurse. So uh, I had to, to work to overcome that. And sometimes I was even successful, but uh, not always. But the experience <laughs> brought to that for everybody, you know, they, so they hold it against you because you show up beautiful. Okay, well, <laughs> that's all part of it. But the <laughs> Too thin, too blonde. <laughs> <laughs> too beautiful. <Yeah. laughs> you shared so many wonderful things, and again, traumatic things, but how you've come out of this and talking about how you've transformed your life and 
you talk about transforming your purpose in life and you come through this just so beautifully to be at the place that you are in your life right now to have written this book and to be the voice speaking up for the Cosby survivors, for the rape victims, for all of this. What would you describe as your driving force? What got you through <laughs> all of this? There was something in me, even from when I was a little girl, I felt I had a purpose here on this earth. I felt I was meant to do something important. I didn't know what it was, but I always felt that I was guided, that I had something I had to do that was going to mean something. I didn't want to leave this earth without having contributed on some level mm -hmm. to somebody, to something. I didn't want to just come and be a mass consumer, you know? <laughs> I wanted to, I didn't want to be remembered as the pinup, you know, who took her clothes off for Hugh and you, you know? I wanted to do something of of value and of substance. I just simply didn't know what it was. When I was young, I thought maybe I would play some amazing dramatic part on Broadway and bring my audience to tears and, you know, and, and have them in the palm of my hand and have that moment. You know, at each stage of your life, you have these things that propel you forward. And, and what's the next thing? You know, what is the next thing? Well, I don't know. I, I had a biracial child. I, my last husband was Chinese, American-born Chinese. And I had had this childish vision when I was young that if I could have a child of each race, I would have the UN all in one family. And I could show the world that everybody could really get along and love each other and be blood. But you had that you know, when you were young. You had that feeling when you were young. Isn't that interesting how that played out through your life, though? Because yeah, it did. And, and I, I sometimes, I, I used to joke, I think I must be in my last incarnation because I'm cramming everything in um, before I move on. Maybe I don't have to come back, you know, and do this over again. Um, and I don't want to do it over again, trust me. Yeah, I, I, I think that somehow in my life, if you believe in reincarnation at all or, or a spiritual path, I just feel that maybe my soul needed these lessons. My purpose was to be a teacher and to share the lessons that I had learned. And maybe I had a whole bunch of loose ends from past lives you know, and my karma was to bring it all together and heal it, maybe for future generations, you know, to try to heal the pain in my family. You know, I just feel here we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors, and we have to know that our shoulders are worthy of being stood upon by our descendants. To be worthy, I think, is important to live a life of substance, of meaning, and to be an example for your children and your grandchildren. You're an example for more than just your family, Victoria. You know, being so outspoken about what happened with Cosby, and not just around Cosby, but the other rape survivors. You talk about the rape culture and all those things that you're, you're impacting people there that you probably don't even know. You probably impacted so many people with your nursing and your training, your hospice patients. 
they're probably things you just had no idea about how you impacted someone's life. But I'm sure you have. You know, I always think of the still pond and we drop a stone, a pebble mm -hmm. into that still water and all those ever expanding ripples. And we don't know what shore those ripples are going to touch, mm -hmm. but we still drop the stone and have to have faith that those ripples will touch the shores they're meant to touch. And I didn't realize when I went public how important what I had to say was going to be, you know, how important it was. And I think people have reached out to me and people from all different countries mm. and shared their stories of being incest victims, um, mm. rape victims, uh, domestic abuse victims, and have told me that they were sharing with me for the very first time because they trusted me. I can't tell you how how much that means to me. I feel like if I died today, I will have done something of value and my life would not have been for nothing. Because to be trusted by, by a stranger, that says a lot, that means a lot. And to be able to give something of myself to somebody who really, really is in need of authenticity, of an authentic, caring person in, in that moment. What more could you ask for in your life but to, to be trusted and, and to be able to help somebody, you know, through a difficult time, you know, or to just give them a little gift. You know, I, I think of my cousin giving me the gift of taking me back to school. She gave me back myself in that one action of having faith in me. And you talked at the mm. beginning when we started talking about when you were young, you believed in the core goodness of people. It sounds like that hasn't been taken away from you in spite of all the things that you've been through or maybe because of the things you've been through. Isn't that something? I, I, I really think about that. And we have to also take into consideration there are sociopaths out there who have no moral compass. Yes. And they are the predators. They are the serial rapists. They are the serial murderers. And they really have no compassion, no empathy, no personal insight. They're incurable. It, it's almost a genetic trait. And so when we try to communicate with them and, and reason uh, with them and, and bring them into a place of understanding from a place of more uh, of an inherent morality. They're incapable of, of doing it. They can put on the outward aspects, you know, like they're putting on a costume. They can adopt the outward persona, but they're hollow yeah. inside and they can't really feel it. And they use the outward characteristics of a good person in order to take advantage of a truly good person with an open heart and a trusting soul. And that's what makes empathy, empathetic people, compassionate people, um, and generous spirited people sitting ducks for these predatory sociopathic uh, psychopaths. 
mm-hmm. these narcissists. So it's a fine line to walk. You want to trust, you want to believe, but you also have to know when to step back. You can't just go around and go, oh, everybody's good and I'm just going to be good and I'm going to, you know. No, you have to also have judgment. And I- Well, and as human beings, we need to learn those skills of observation too, so that even though we're not trained or not day in and day out with the same people, but to to kind of have our spidey sense (laughs) up there, you know. Yeah, yeah, our little antennas. (laughs) We could go on for hours and hours. I love hearing your stories, and I love where you're at, the point that you're at in your life, how you're supporting truth and justice. Your voice is being heard. And you're helping other people get their voices heard. You're such a beautiful woman, inside and out. And Victoria, it's been such oh. a pleasure. I'll ask. Thank you so much. I'll ask for your contact information in a minute. Is there any last-minute advice you want to give women about pushing the limits, or any any last things that you want to share before we wind this up? Forgive yourself. It's not your fault. And love yourself. Be good to yourself. Go out immediately and buy yourself a big bouquet of roses and breathe. Remember to breathe. Such great advice. Thank you today for doing this. How can people find you? Well, I'm on Facebook. I'm the one with the blonde hair and these glasses. (laughs) I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. Um, you'll you'll recognize my face. Don't ask the handles because I can never remember them. But they're always something like V Valentino One or Victoria Valentino One, something like that. Well, we'll but you'll find in. me, and I would love to have you share life with me every day and your comments and and uh, and join me in this journey. Well, we would love to do that. I'm so thrilled that we've connected. Really appreciate Christine putting us together here and, and yes. spending so much time with us today, Victoria. This, it fills my heart to see how you've handled all the things that you've been through and how you've come out on this side to be such an amazing person, helping so many other people. So thank you for that. Well, I, thank you. I will thank our listeners today for joining us. Thank you for spending time today on Women Who Push the Limits. We've had such an amazing interview with Victoria Valentino, who is best known as a Cosby sexual assault survivor and an advocate for women, an advocate for rape victims, and a voice for truth and justice. I know that this has been an amazing interview today. So please leave a rating, leave a review, and share it out with those who need to hear Victoria's story. There are so many who need to hear Victoria's story. I'm your host, Lynn Murphy, and this has been an absolute delight today. Join in next time and be sure and subscribe so you don't miss any amazing women on our interviews. And till we see you next time, remember this, you find your limits by pushing them. So keep pushing. Thank you for tuning in today. Please like, subscribe, write a review, and tell your friends and family about this podcast. Don't be shy about sharing this episode with anyone you think would enjoy it. And if you want more information about this podcast and about this amazing project, go to womenwhopushthelimits.com. That's womenwhopushthelimits.com. Tune in next time for another amazing interview with an inspiring woman who truly pushes the limits.